You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Have you ever had a moment in the last year, perhaps, or even before 2020, maybe it was in this election cycle, when you thought, people are sure a lot more cynical than they used to be. Have you realized that the tide seems to be rising on cynicism? That it's freshly acceptable, even expected in some places and contexts. It is mainstream. It is admired. And by cynicism, I mean the general disinclination to trust others, especially purported authorities. Or, you can put it this way, the inclination to believe the worst in others and in our world altogether. And it is increasingly the air that we breathe through these masks. This mood of cynicism didn't appear out of nowhere. It is the result of what we might call secularism. Big word. But that just means the pretense that there is no God, or at least that he is off limits in public discourse and polite company. Secularism has no firm hope to offer. And so soon enough, secularism will produce cynicism in society. And cynicism will begin to pick at the very basic pillars and long-standing human givens of life and of civilization, one after another. So secularism, which is increasingly the world we're living in, breeds cynicism. And cynicism, surprisingly, does not breed productive action. Cynicism breeds laziness. It did on the island of Crete, as Paul saw it and told Titus about it. And it does in our day as well. And this morning, we turn for the first time to Paul's letter to Titus, in which he writes to counter the unbelief and the laziness of Crete and its false teachers. Paul writes with a counter-cultural message, and it is just as counter-cultural now as it was then. The message is hope, genuine hope, objective hope, hope that effects productive lives. In verse 2, as you heard Ryan read there, he says, the hope of eternal life. And then later, near the end of the letter, chapter 7, chapter 3, verse 7, he uses the exact same phrase, same three words, hope of eternal life and then once more at the very heart of the letter chapter 2 verse 13 Paul talks about our blessed hope what cynicism gets right is that we are indeed living in a fallen world our world is not what it was at the beginning our race sinned sin entered in and it remains we are born into sin And if there is no God, then there is indeed a lot to be cynical and hopeless about. But this is precisely where we as Christians say, all right, world, 
we hear you on your doctrine of sin, though you may not call it that, and we believe in sin, big time. We believe this world is seriously messed up. We believe there's a lot to be critical about. And the story doesn't end there. Because we believe in redemption. We believe in change. We believe in grace. We believe in Jesus. We have hope, genuine hope. We reject cynicism. We have hope. And one reason that hope is so important in this letter to Titus is that the opposition that Titus is facing in Crete is not hopeful and not fruitful. The problem people in Crete do a lot of talking and not a lot of practical good. Chapter 1 verse 10 says that they're empty talkers and deceivers. Chapter 1 verse 11 says they must be silenced. Chapter 1 verse 12 says they're not just liars, but they're lazy. And then verse 16 says they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are unfit for good works. One commentator says here that this portrait in chapter 1 shows a lack of restraint, laziness, and opportunism, markers of either no work ethic or a diabolical one. And we may not be so removed from first century Crete as we would like to think. So in these next six weeks, until this Sunday before Christmas, we will be here together in these three short chapters of Titus. And as we'll see in these first four verses this morning, this letter meets us where we are in 2020. I didn't know that's where Kevin was going, the exhortation. <laughs> I guess we're doing six weeks of Advent this year as a church, all right? You guys ready? Hope is a major theme in Titus. Hope is a major theme for Advent as we wait with expectant hope. So we just begin Advent here this morning in some ways. Six weeks of hope in Titus leading up to Christmas. Titus is a tract for our times. And I think it will meet us in some surprising ways here in 2020. And it's a great six-week plan leading up to Christmas. Verses 1 to 4 of Titus are what we might call the prelude. You see this in Paul's letter. This little prelude at the beginning. And Paul packs more into these opening verses in Titus than he does in any of his other letters, except Romans. The whole letter is here in these four verses, in microcosm, and with it, we get a big picture, clear, insightful summary of the Christian life and how God saves his people from eternity to eternity. And if you're here with us this morning for the first time, or you're new to Christianity, or you are old to Christianity, there is nothing better that we could talk about and rehearse the details together of how God saves his people. And so we get a taste of the whole letter here, even as we focus on verses 1 to 4. And so let's do this this morning. Let's move with the Apostle Paul from the distant past to the near past, the recent past, to the present, to the near future, and then finally to the distant future. That's where he's going. That's the path we're traveling here in these first four verses of Titus. So number one, the Father chose a people to save. 
in the distant past. He chose in the distant past a people to save. Look at verses 1 and 2. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So we have two references here to what we might call the distant past. Verse 2 mentions God promising before the ages began. And verse 1 refers to God's people as God's elect. Elect means chosen. God chose his people. Their choosing of him, though real and important, is not ultimate. His choosing of his people is decisive. And this is the same theme throughout the Bible. The Old Testament talks about God's people being chosen. And Jesus himself picks up on that. Seven different places in the gospel, he talks about God's people as his elect. And the apostle Paul picks, some, picks up on it. Talks about that in his letters. We saw that a few weeks ago, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Paul said, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, for the sake of God's chosen people. Colossians 3.12, Paul refers to Christians as God's chosen ones. And 1 Peter 2.9 says, you are a chosen race to the church. And in Romans 9.11, Paul explains God's purpose of election, of choosing his people. That it is foundationally his choice that constitutes his people, not our choice. Real and essential as our choice is our embrace of him, our faith in him. When did this choice happen? When did God choose, elect a people to save? Paul says in Ephesians 1.4 that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's the distant past. And Titus 1.2 says before the ages began. Or literally, before times eternal. He promised. What did he promise? Eternal life. To whom? His elect. His chosen. And what did this require then? The end of verse 4 calls him God our Savior. He chose his people to save them from this age of sin and cynicism and fruitlessness. Twice in Titus, God the Father is said to be Savior. Right here and in chapter 2, verse 10. And then there are four other mentions of this word Savior in the book of Titus, which leads us to the next point. So our story begins in the distant past, before times eternal. God chose a people, his elect. He appointed them to be saved, to be their savior, but not God the Father alone, not God the Father alone in that. So number two, the son came to save his people. This is what we will celebrate in Advent, the coming, the advent of the son. And this is in the recent past. It's still recent past for us compared to eternity past. And it was especially recent past for Paul and for Titus. Look now, verses 3 and 4. At the proper time, 
God manifested his word through the preaching with which I have entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So verse three, we have God our Savior. And then verse four, we have Christ Jesus our Savior. So the Father and the Son work together in this saving action. They are distinct. Both are called Savior. Both do saving. But Son is not Father, and Father is not Son. The Father chose His people, and the Son became man and lived in our world and died in our place to save God's people. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14 this is, this is right at the heart of the letter, 2, 11 to 14. And Paul makes it explicit there, this coming of Christ. He says that the Son came. He, he uses this language of grace, the grace of God. It's grace incarnate. Chapter 2, verse 11. The grace of God has appeared in the coming of Christ. Grace appeared. He says later on, chapter 3, verse 4, that the goodness and loving kindness of our God appeared, meaning in Christ Jesus. And he says, chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, that the Son gave himself for us to secure God's people. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us to redeem us and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. So Paul says that Christ came. The Father sent him. And not a moment too early or too late. I love this phrase, at the proper time. This is not the only place in the New Testament where we hear this language of at the proper time. Literally here, it is in his own time. Not in your time. Not in my time. Not in human time. He sent him. He came in his own time. Which is such a priceless word for us in a world like ours. With the kind of impatience that we have naturally and that we live with. With the sin, with the disappointments, with the loss, with the tragedy, with the pandemic. God is doing what he is doing in his time. Not ours. God never gets the timing wrong. Some of you may remember just a little glimpse of this. It was an old movie. Some of you old folks in here may have seen. Called The Fellowship of the Ring. And after the prelude, you see Frodo running through the woods. And the first thing that Frodo says is, you're late. And then Gandalf. Gandalf the Grey. The great wizard responds with a straight face. A wizard is never late, Frodo Baggins. Nor is he early. He always arrives precisely when he means to. Which is just a little glimpse of the timing of God. He is not late or early. He always arrives. He always does it at the proper time, precisely when he means to. And we need to know this with the disappointments we face, with the struggles we face. His timing was perfect in that first coming. 
His timing will be perfect in the second coming. And his timing will be precisely what he means for it to be in our lives. Three quick texts. 1 Timothy 2, 5 to 6. This is Christ's first coming. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Not a moment too late. 1 Timothy 6, 14 to 15. This is about Christ's second coming. The appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He is coming back at precisely the right time. And then what about our lives? Not just the first coming, not his second coming. What about, what about our lives now? In the week in, week out. 1 Peter 5, 6. God's perfect timing and rescuing and exalting of his people. Humble yourselves, he says, under the mighty hand, under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time he may exalt you. So Christ came. And he accomplished his saving work for us at the proper time. Then what? The word must get out. The word must go forward. And this is where Paul's preaching comes in, in verse 3. Paul has been commissioned as an apostle for the stewarding and the spreading of this word about Christ in the gospel. And Paul says that God has, at the proper time, manifested his word about Christ through the preaching with which he has been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. So here's the picture we have so far in these first few verses of Titus. And note, so far, all of this is outside of us. This is long before we existed. We are not yet acting. First, the Father, before ages eternal, chose a people to save. Then, at the proper time, in his own time, he sent his Son. God's grace appeared in person, in a human soul and body, to redeem and purify a people for his own possession. And the risen Christ appointed Paul then to be an apostle and preach and publish and spread the message about Christ. So Paul is the appointed instrument to preach the message to the people for whom Jesus died. So the father chose, the son came, and then third, faith defines the people being saved. So important. This is in the present. Now we're to the present. Distant past, recent past, to the present. Faith defines the people being saved. Now we get involved. Now this is about something that we participate in. Look back at verse one. Paul says that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. The first and primary focus in God's people is faith. It's not the only concern. Paul has more to say. And that more is no small reality in this epistle of all places. But there's an order. Faith first. Faith defines the chosen people. Faith is the instrument in us that receives Christ and his work for us and puts us in right relationship with God. Faith is the starter, not our doing. 
And so Paul's going to say in Titus 3.5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And because of this critical role that faith, not our doing, that faith plays in our acceptance with God, it fits in verse 4 when Paul calls Titus my true child in a common faith. Similarly, in the last verse of this letter, Paul will say, greet those who love us in the faith. Faith is a fitting summary term for Christianity because the first and foremost reality that makes us Christian under God's choice and under Christ's sacrifice is faith. And if you wonder, am I a part of this chosen people? Am I part of the elect people? Did Christ die to save me? The first follow-up question is, do you have faith? What do you believe about Jesus? Do you embrace him? Do you trust him? Do you lean into him? There's no answering the question about election apart from faith. Faith marks the chosen people. Those who are chosen have faith. And not only faith here, but Paul talks about knowledge of the truth. Which is another way of talking about faith or coming to faith. Knowledge of the truth. But he doesn't end there. He says he's an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. So first faith, then more. And he says this knowledge of the truth accords with with godliness so there's where we go next the father chose the son came faith marks the chosen people who are being saved and then fourth godliness issues from the people of faith now we're talking near future went present now we're talking near future godliness issues from the people of faith, the people who are being saved. Now, there is a sense in which godliness, Christ-likeness in the Christian life is not just future. It is present. It's present for Titus. It's present for us. But there's this ordering. And because of the ordering, I'm calling it near future. Faith in the present, godliness following faith in the ordering. Paul doesn't command godliness so that people will have faith. He doesn't say, be godly, hoping that that godliness produces faith. That's not the order. Paul preaches to incite faith. He preaches the truth. He wants his hearers to know the truth through faith. And this knowledge, he says, accords with godliness. Saving faith produces what he calls godliness. What is godliness then? This, this is important, you need to know this. What is godliness? There's another mention of this word godliness or the, the adverb godly in Titus chapter two, verse 12. He says the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly 
lives in the present age. So apart from God's grace, we all live in ungodliness and worldly passions. In other words, in our sin, we will not live as God himself would live if he were in our world. On the other hand, godly lives are what God's people live in the present age. By his grace, God's people live increasingly like he himself would live if he were human in this world. Like he did live as he became man in Christ Jesus in this world. That's what we often talk about this as Christ-likeness in the church. And what this letter makes clear, perhaps as clearly as any of Paul's letters, is that godliness is not mainly withdrawal from the world. It's not withdrawal from the life of others. But in fact, godliness pulses with the longing to do good for others. Good works, we call it sometimes. Faith, not our works, gets us right with God. And then, in right relationship with him, faith blossoms into doing good for other people. Our knowledge of the truth doesn't send us running from the lives of others to keep ourselves clean. Rather, it unleashes us to do genuine good for other people. So Titus 2.14 is going to talk about the church being zealous for doing good. Chapter 3, verse 1, about being ready for doing good. Chapter 3, verse 8, devoted to doing good. Chapter 3, verse 14, devoted to doing good, to meet cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Don't be unfruitful like cynical, lazy, unproductive people. How then does this unleashing happen? How is it that faith and knowledge of the truth issue in good works of godliness? There's one last component that we can't leave out in these verses and in the book of Titus. So God chose the people. Christ came to save them. Faith marks them. Godliness issues from them in good works. And then fifth and finally, hope in the distant future frees the people of faith to be zealous, ready, devoted, productive, godly doers. Hope in what's coming. Hope in the future, frees the people of faith to do good in the world. Not only is God's saving and Christ's saving as Savior a major theme in Titus, and not only is our doing good a major theme in Titus, but also this massive, transforming reality called hope. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. 
hope of eternal life is not a throwaway phrase for the Apostle Paul. He is telling us how good works happen. How does knowledge go to work for Christians in the world? How does knowing the truth lead to doing good? How does saving faith lead to practical godliness? If Paul could give a one-word answer in Titus, it would be hope. By hope, Paul is not talking about a wish. We often use the word hope like this. I hope it's warmer tomorrow. I hope the Vikings win. Hope the pandemic's over soon. We often use hope for our thin wishes about an uncertain or even unlikely future. That is not how Paul uses the word hope in Titus. This is not a wish about the uncertain. This is well-founded faith with a future orientation. This is knowledge of the truth looking forward. And how do we know that Paul has such a strong, solid, objective, powerful, life-changing concept of hope in mind? What he says next. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. This hope that we will, not a wish, that we will live forever with Jesus Christ. This hope catalyzes Christian faith into actions of love for others. And it is based on the God who never lies. If you thought it was strange here in the prelude of Titus, why does he say God who never lies? It kind of sticks out, God who never lies. The reason it's here in the prelude is it's the foundation of hope. And hope's the catalyst between faith and godliness. God's promises, his never lying is essential in giving us hope that is firm. Our hope is as good as the word of God. Christian hope is not a virtue that originates with us. We don't muster it up. Hope begins with the solid, sure, unfailing promises of the never lying God. Christian hope begins with what God is and who God says he is and what he will do. And then hope swells to receive and trust and look to what God says is coming for us in Christ Jesus. Paul says something really similar in Colossians chapter 1. Verses four to five, I'll read that for you. He says to the Colossians, we heard of your faith, there's the term faith, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for the saints, that's good deeds, that's godliness. Because of, he says, the hope laid up for you in heaven. The people of faith did good for others, love, because of their hope. Faith in the present fed hope in a coming heaven 
which released the people of God from earthly fears and entanglements and selfishness and laziness to dream for and do good for others. As we said at the beginning, not only does hope appear here in verse two, but it is the key link between faith and love twice more in the letter. At the end, chapter three, verses seven, chapter two, 11 to 14. Look, look quickly here as we finish, chapter two, verse 13. How is it that God's people renounce ungodliness and live godly lives in the present age? 213, we are waiting for the blessed hope the appearing of, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So looking to heaven, looking to eternal life, looking to Jesus and his coming frees us to do genuine good for the lives of others. Chapter three, verse seven. Chapter three, uh, four to seven. He rehearses how, how Christ has saved us by his own mercy, not our works. By counting us righteous, justification, by his grace through faith. By new birth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And the last thing he mentions in verse 7, hope. That we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's the exact same three words as chapter 1 verse 2. So what will God's saving through our faith leading to hope produce? In verse 8 gets back to godliness, to good works. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. That's the things just mentioned. Mercy, justification, new birth. Insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So hope in the future to come, hope in eternal life is the link between our knowing the truth in Christ and our doing good for others in the world. Maybe you've heard the expression, that somebody is uh, so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. I've never seen that be true. I think that's just a hypothetical. Typically, we are so earthly minded that we are of compromised earthly good. And if we were more heavenly minded, if we had more hope, we would be of more serious earthly good. If I had time, I'd love to go to Hebrews and show you how this works again and again in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13. We don't have time for that. So let me close with one example of how hope, psychologically, how does it work? How does hope move us from being just people of faith to people that do good for others? This is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It's about Jesus. How was it that the consummate man of faith, God himself in human flesh, the founder and perfecter of our faith, did the single greatest good of all time? What propelled him against the greatest possible obstacles to go to the cross to save his people? It was hope. Faith looking to the future and seeing the reward. It's not wishful thinking about the future. The eyes of faith in Christ looked to the future and realized, tasted that the outcome 
is as good as the promises of God. This hope is as solid as God's word. And so Jesus, Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. In other words, hope. Joy that was set before him is another way of saying hope. Faith fed hope. Hope produced godliness. And so brothers and sisters, as we come to the table this morning, we come to a table of hope. The good shepherd has prepared for us a table of hope in the midst of our cynical society. And each Sunday, this table is a kind of fork in the road for us. Just as the Christian faith is a fork in the road for us. Will we walk the world's path of unbelief, leading to cynicism, leading to laziness and unproductive lives? Or will we be the people of faith, God's elect, who have his never lying promises and have solid hope that frees us from ourselves to do good for others and be genuinely productive with our lives? So I invite you to eat this morning in faith, to eat in hope. If you're here with us this morning and you'd say, I hope in Jesus. I trust in him, rest in him. I trust the promises of God. We'd ask you to, we'd invite you to eat with us. We'll bring the bread and the cup. The pastors will mask up. We'll bring it to you if you wanna put your hands out, put it there. Uh, If you are not trusting in Christ this morning for the future, just let it pass. Uh, but if you're trusting with us and you're hoping in Christ, we'd love to have you eat with us. We'll bring, the, bring that around. His body is the true bread. His blood is the true drink. Let us serve you.